0: So welcome to the sixth and final uh, lecture in the John Locke Lectures on our knowledge of the internal world by uh, Bob Stornaker of MIT, and his sixth lecture today will be called Knowing What We Are Thinking. All right, thank you. Uh, okay, I, I quoted last week a, a statement by uh, Michael Dummett um, of a principle of uh, transparency that, like the principle of acquaintance um, uh, proposed by Russell, seemed to require a kind of intimate epistemic relation with the constituents of the contents of our thought that was hard to accept. A different statement also by Dummett of the idea of epistemic transparency, or actually in, in particular way he puts it, uh, a kind of semantic uh, transparency, Um but I wanna apply it to thought rather than to language. But um, anyway, this, this version is a little, perhaps less problematic in some ways. It is an undeniable feature of the notion of meaning, obscure as that notion is, that meaning is transparent in the sense that if someone attaches a meaning to each of two words, he must know whether these meanings are the same. Now, if we extend this idea from meaning the meanings of words to the contents of thought, um, then ep- uh, uh, epistemic uh, transparency might be stated as the requirement that a thinker have the capacity to recognize whether or not two occurring thoughts uh, she is having at a certain time have the same or different contents. Paul Bogosian defends this principle of uh, discussion of it divides it into two parts so the transparency of difference and the transparency of sameness, arguing uh, that it's a necessary, both parts are a necessary part of any adequate account of intentionality. Pagosian also argues that the principle of epistemic transparency cannot be reconciled with an externalist or anti-individualist, to use Tyler Burge's term, uh, account of the facts that give thought their content. So while the first formulation of Dummett's principle of transparency seems to require a picture of the contents of thought as internal objects, the second formulation is not tied to the problematic idea of grasping the essential nature of an object, and it seems a more promising way to spell out the idea that we must know simply by thinking what it is that we are thinking. I agree with Boghossian that we ascribe thought in order to explain rational behavior and to assess the reasoning of thinkers, and that such explanations and assessments can't turn on facts that are inaccessible to the subject. So, as we saw in talking about David Lewis interpreting Saul Kripke, those two agreed that if a theory were forced to say that Pierre, because of his factual mistake, Um, had contradictory beliefs, then there'd be something wrong with the theory. But I think transparency uh, can be understood the second way, can be reconciled with an anti-individualist account of the facts that determine content. As with the puzzles about Lewis's account of the role of experience in eliminating possibilities, I'm going to suggest that the puzzles about knowledge of content involve a mixing of internal and external perspectives. It's sort of an inapt mixing of the two. And that if we give a thoroughly externalist account, both of knowledge and of the role of content in the characterization of states of mind, we can explain what we know and what we don't know about what we are thinking. Okay, now the argument of Boghossian that I want to focus on concerns a twin-earth um, experiment. Um, I'm going to use Boghossian's example since it's his argument that I want to discuss, but I think the example involves an unnecessary amount of, of fantasy or science fiction or something. The same point that the story makes could have been made with a much more down to earth case about which intuitions might be clearer. And I'm going to, when I get sort of done discussing the structure of the argument, describes some more homey examples that have a similar structure. But first, I'll tell his story, which derives from an example that Tyler Burge first gave and sketch Boghossian's argument. Then I'll say how I think the argument should be diffused, and after quickly sketching a few less exotic examples, say what I think the moral of the story is. Then I'm going to conclude with some very general impressionistic Remarks about the picture, the overall picture that I've been trying to paint in these uh, lectures. Okay, Twin Earth in Boghossian's story is not a counterfactual world, but rather a part of the actual world. The story concerns an unfortunate earthling, uh, Peter. Uh, who is suddenly and unwittingly transported to Twin Earth, where Twin Earth is Putnam's Twin Earth, where he suffers no discernible disruption in the continuity of his mental life, but happily lives out the rest of his days, never discovering the relocation that he has been forced to undergo. Okay, that's the story. Now, it's clear... As, at least if we make the usual assumptions um, about the moral of the original Putnam Twin Earth thought experiment, it's clear that the thought expressed with the word water that Peter thinks when he first arrives on Twin Earth, the thoughts he expressed are thoughts about water and not about twin water, the Twin Earth substitute with chemical composition X, Y, Z. When immediately after the unwitting switch Peter looks out on a lake, which is actually filled with X, Y, Z rather than H2O. He forms the false belief that there is water in the lake. But after a certain amount of time goes by, both internalist and externalist parties agree. And as I say, it was originally Tyler Burge's story, um, um, something like this. And, and he um, said, acknowledge this is the result it seems intuitively right to say that the thoughts peter would express with the same word water would come to be thoughts about twin water at the later time that after he's lived for many years on on twin earth when he looks out at the same lake and thinks a thought that he would express the same way his thought is one that is true if and only if there is xyz or twatter whatever you want to call it in the lake Now, this kind of thought experiment has come to be called a slow switching scenario. There are two switches. First, Peter is switched from one environment to another without knowing it. And then the intuition is that a second switch, this time in the content of his thought, will follow sometime later. Okay, now I'm going to sketch a simple model of the story just to sort of, set up a way to think about it uh, using the kind of representation of a state of belief in terms of possible worlds that I've been using uh, throughout. And I say my model is simple because it's over simple, but the story is complicated as well as oversimplified. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about all the details, but I hope the pictures will make clear uh, what the general, Uh, what the general idea is Um, and part of what the pictures will do is is illustrate one more time the general method of the general procedure uh, which I like to follow for trying to understand cases where the ascription of content uh, to thought is or language is problematic. Uh, And the general idea is to try to clarify the content of someone's thought when it isn't clear or when it's controversial or problematic, what that thought content is. Clarify it by asking, so what's what's the world like, according to them? That is, let's describe in our terms what the world is like, according to um, uh, the subject in question. Okay, I'm going to consider just um, three possible worlds, Alpha W1 and W2, and three times uh, within each world. So first, there is the actual world um, uh, in which the surreptitious switch took place, the one in which the story, Bekozian um, story, took place. Uh, second, there is, of course, it isn't really the actual world, but you know what I mean. Second, Uh, There is a world in which no switch W1, in which no switch took place. Um, But uh, Peter lived out his life just as he thinks he did at the beginning uh, on um, on Earth. And third uh, possible world is one in which no switch took place, but in which Peter was born and raised on twin Earth rather than on Earth. But in which he lived a life that was, from the inside, just like the life he led in the other two possible worlds. Okay, so uh, that box represents logical space, and just to locate these three possible worlds in logical space. Um, Okay, so then the three times. In question, are uh, T zero before the actual transportation, a time T one very soon after the when he first arrives on Twin Earth and time T two, the time much later, when, according to a Bogosian story, the switch has taken place. Peter's thoughts expressed with the word water are thoughts about twin water or X, Y, Z. In each of these worlds and at each time there is a lake he's looking at and thinking a somewhat pedestrian thought that he would express at each time and in each world by saying there's water in the lake. Okay. Now we can ask a series of questions about Peter's knowledge and belief. First, which of these possible worlds are compatible with Peter's beliefs and with his knowledge? Two separate questions at each time. Second, What is the content of the thought that Peter thinks in each of the possible worlds and at each of the times? Since we'll be considering the problem from uh, as raised for the externalist about content, we'll be asking what the externalist or the anti-individualist should say about each of these uh, questions. Okay, so we'll just go through relatively quickly here um, just to get get the idea. OK, so what's Peter's belief at time T1 when he arrives uh, when he arrives uh, on to twin earth? Uh, his, the actual world is not compatible with his beliefs. He thinks he's in W1. He thinks he's in a world where he's still on Earth and he's looking at H at the lake filled with water. What's Peter's knowledge or oh, not? Uh, second, we have Peter's beliefs at T2 at the later time. When we're assuming that the content of his thought is um, is uh, that there's water in the lake, as he would put it, is that there's X, Y, Z or twin water in the lake. Uh, So in this case, it's the world W2 that's compatible with his beliefs. And we can also ask about knowledge at T1. Of course, the actual world is always compatible with one's knowledge. So his knowledge at T1 includes these two worlds, but not the. W2, um, and his knowledge at the second time includes uh, the actual world plus W2, but not W1. Okay, so that's the answers to our questions. What is the con- what is the what is the state of knowledge um, Peter is in according to what does the externalist say about the answer to that question? Okay, now we can ask. Um, I mean, he thinks the thought which he he says to himself there's water in this lake and it's now at t1 he's on twin earth looking out of the twin earth lake thinking that thought the question is what's the content um uh of this uh uh thought okay so the if it's water that his thought is about real water h2o so the thought that he's thinking is true in W one, but it's false in the actual world because it's X, Y, Z that he's looking at and it's false in W two. So the content of the statement is one that's true just among the three worlds I've chosen just in W one. Now we might say, okay, so call this proposition, the one expressed by S one on this occasion, call it proposition P. OK. And so we label it Proposition P. And then we ask about another proposition, the proposition Q, which is the proposition that S one expresses proposition P. Um, so this is the question which connects the thought to its content. Uh, and then we can ask, so what uh, in what possible worlds is Proposition P whether Proposition Q um, true. So the answer is, in the actual world, he's thinking the thought that's about water, and in world W1, he's thinking the thought that's about water. But in W2, he's not thinking that thought. So the proposition that Q, uh, the proposition Q that S1 expresses proposition P, is um, false in W2, but true in the other two worlds. Okay. So if you remember what, which are the possible worlds compatible with Peter's knowledge at this time, there are these same two possible worlds. So, therefore, um, since Q is true in all possible worlds compatible with what Peter knows at T1 in the, world, in the actual world, therefore, Peter knows then what the content of his thought is. And I won't go through it because it's exactly the same um, sequence for the story at, at uh, uh, time T2, when this is the token thought S2 that he thinks then, um, call it P star, this proposition, this different proposition, and then um, let Q star be the proposition that, it, that S2 expresses P star, and then we can say Q star itself is true in just these two possible worlds, not the other. And so once again, since Q star is true in all possible worlds compatible with what Peter knows at the later time, Peter knows then what the content of his thought is because so that's the general first pass of the story. But we haven't really got to the hard part yet, but I just want to make the point here that um, um, and so from the answers to the questions, we, we, we can deduce that the conclusion, uh, we can deduce the conclusion that Peter knows what the content of his thought is at each time he's thinking about what's in the lake at that time, uh, at the time he's thinking about it. And the reason we get this result is because in each of the possible worlds that is compatible with his knowledge at the time, the content of his thought is the same as it is in the actual world the model gives an explicit implementation of the externalist general strategy for reconciling his theory with knowledge of content, the strategy really, which uh, although Burge has a whole lot to say about it, um, still, it's the same rough general idea, which was expressed much more simply by or summed up by Donald Davidson, which goes in quotes, uh, showing that there is no conflict between externalism and knowledge of content is basically simple. It depends on realizing that whatever is responsible for the contents of our thoughts, whether known or not, is also responsible for the content of the thought that we have the thought. Okay, so that's... Um, 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 that's a kind of just quick uh, summary of that. Um But um, the externalist strategy is more problematic, Boghossian argues, when we consider not just the simple sort of focusing on each particular time, but ask about Peter's thoughts at one time about his thoughts at another time. So suppose Peter considers what the content of his thought was at an earlier time, that is, he's considering at time T two, he's remembering his thought at T one and he takes a thought from memory and puts it together with a current thought. At T two, Peter thinks, I remember thinking back at T one that there was water in the lake I was then looking at. He might reason in his usual pedestrian fashion, there was water in that lake, there's water in this lake. So there was water in both lakes. Boghossian argues that the externalist is committed to saying that Peter, in this reasoning, is making a logical and not a factual mistake, a fallacy of equivocation, since the two water thoughts involve distinct concepts that Peter treats in his thought as the same. Now, the issue is what the relation is between the content of Peter's thought at the earlier time, uh, there is now water in this lake, and the content of his later thought when he is recalling the earlier thought and thinking there was water in that lake. Boghossian argues that they must be the same. And if he is right, then we have a violation of epistemic transparency, because we have two, uh, two thoughts that have different content but he, he thinks they have the same content. But the externalist doesn't have to grant this. There's no question that Peter thinks that the earlier thought has the same content as the corresponding current thought taken from memory has. And, but he might be mistaken about this without violating transparency. No one thinks that we have special access to what we were thinking at an earlier time. So the externalist says that the earlier thought about what was in the lake was about H2O, while the later thought about the earlier event, the memory thought, was a thought about XYZ. Peter is making a factual mistake when he says or thinks at the later time, a thought that he would express this way. At the earlier time, when I said to myself, there was water in this lake, I was thinking that there was water in in that lake. His reasoning, the externalist argues, is logically fine. It's just that one of the premises is false. And to allude to the notion of reflexive content um, that Perry talked about and to the way in which I've been talking about, the way you have to take account both of the, uh, the sort of what's on the surface subject matter, what one's talking about, and the relation between yourself and the subject matter, the factual mistake in this case, is a reflexive kind of mistake. Peter makes a factual rather than a logical mistake when he says based on memory that there was water in that lake then. But Boghossian replies to this, surely memory failure is not the point. It is, he says, a platitude that if X knows that P, uh, uh, this is Boghossian's platitude, if X knows that P at T1, And if at some later time, T2, S remembers everything S knew at T1, then S knows that P at T2. It's a platitude about memory. Now, Bagosian is surely right that it would misdescribe the situation to say that Peter's memory failed. And what he calls a platitude certainly sounds like one, though there are different ways to understand what it says. And some of his ways of talking about What happens when um, in the dynamics, when things change over time, when we talk about the Sleeping Beauty uh, case, there are ways to put some sort of uh, straightforward description of the case, which are which involve later thoughts about earlier thoughts, which uh, in problematic cases are misleading. But what one might say here is that there are other ways for knowledge to change over time than by learning and forgetting. But the real point here is that there's something misleading about locating the change, the switch in terms of the way this case is usually characterized uh, in Peter's, uh, the change in Peter's knowledge in him rather than in the context in which knowledge is attributed to him or in the circumstances that are appropriate for describing his cognitive situation. No switch in Peter takes place. What happens is that at the later, but not the earlier time, Peter's capacities and dispositions are more naturally described as a function of the substance XYZ rather than the substance H2O. Knowledge is, in a sense, lost and gained, because the space of possibilities that's relevant to the theorist's characterization of the subject's cognitive capacities changes. The externalist must concede that it is difficult to describe in a straightforward way the changes in Peter's cognitive situation, his massive error about relevant changes in his environment. Anyway, at at all points, there's a massive error. Um, uh, involve a mismatch between changes in his environment and changes in the way he represents his environment. But we can give a coherent description of his cognitive situation that's compatible with a reasonable version of Bogosian's transparency principle. What we have in this description are failures because of factual error to know at one time what one was thinking at another time. But there's no need to assume that there are failures at any single time that might give rise to inaccessible logical errors. Now, I should say here the issue—I'm uh, oversimplifying the issue—and there's more to be said. Uh, Tyler Burge has talked some about this because reasoning itself takes time um, and um, um, it switches um, uh, what the appropriate. Way to attribute content uh, shift in the course of reasoning, then um, uh, we have a, a problem describing the situation. But I think um, the um, um, the facts can still be accounted for. Now, as I say, there's more more to be said about about some cases. Now, the debate about how to understand the slow switching scenario is sometimes framed has a question about whether our unfortunate character has one or two concepts, one water concept or two, that is, at the later time, say the time T2. Does he have one water concept or two? Does Peter lose one concept and gain another at the time of the switch? Or does he keep the old concept when he gains the new one, systematically confusing them with each other? This way of putting the problem suggests that the issue is about Peter's internal cognitive mechanism. Does he have two different file folders labeled water in his mental file cabinet, one old and one new? Or did he throw out the old folder, moving its contents into a new one when the switch occurred? But the 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 arguments about the issue don't consider evidence about the form in which mental representation takes, the form that mental representation takes, an issue in any case in which we can only speculate. And the forms of representation, that is what the sort of cognitive architecture uh, is at the time when all this takes place, don't seem to be relevant. This is another place, I think, where talk of concepts is not helpful. If what we mean by a concept is something like a mental word, And if it's assumed we take on that kind of model and it's assumed that Peter's thoughts about what he calls water are realized in the tokening of mental words, then it would seem most plausible to assume that Peter has just one word whose meaning and extension shifts because of changes in his relation to his environment. But to take this model seriously requires strong theoretical assumptions about the form in which thoughts are represented. And specifically what it requires is a commitment to the possibility of identifying a particular kind of representational vehicle independently of its intentional properties as the thing which shifts its meaning from one to the other. Our model of Peter's evolving cognitive situation and I think the issues about what goes on at the time of, sh- uh, of what the alleged shift uh, need make no assumptions about the form that his mental representations take. So the characterization of the situation is entirely in terms of the, uh, the c- character of the information and the way that changes. Now, there are less exotic examples of the phenomenon that's illustrated by the story of Peter's unfortunate travels. And I'm going to look quickly at three more stories, since I think more realistic stories are more reliable sources of intuitive judgment, in particular, the sort of two concept way of describing the situation look less plausible when you when you look at more realistic examples. So first, just uh, um, uh, consider a case that's really very, very close in structure. Uh, Consider the case of Albert, who revisits years later an island where he had spent a memorable childhood vacation, or so he believes. But in fact, the island he visits as an adult is a different one. Treasure Island was Albert's childhood private name for the place. Treasure Island is not unspoiled, charming and exciting the way it used to be, Albert muses on what he believes is his visit back to the place. First visit back to the place. He reaches this comparative judgment by putting his memory of the original island together with his current observation of the different one. There's clearly no logical error here. His belief at the time that he would express by saying, I am now on Treasure Island, again, using his private name, uh, that belief Uh, is that statement and that belief it expresses is simply factually false. That's not where he is. Now, despite his disappointment, Albert kept going back year after year, and he came to know the place, that is, the same place that he kept going back to, very well. Many years later, uh, on arriving for his vacation, he said, oh, I see that Treasure Island has rebuilt their airport since I was here last year. It seems right to say that the first thought that Albert had when he first arrived was about the original Treasure Island, but that the later thought is about the new island, which has in the meantime become the dominant source of Albert's beliefs that he would express with the name Treasure Island. Throughout the story, there is only one relevant island, in the world as Albert takes it to be. We sort of focus on what, what's the world like according to Albert. There aren't two islands. There's just one. Uh, and there's no question of memory failure throughout his, uh, his experience. The problem is that there are two relevant islands in the actual world, and we need to say which of them is the one island in the world according to Albert. The shift from one answer to the other is not in Albert but in the circumstances would make one rather than the other of these islands, the more appropriate candidate to use to describe his state of mind. Okay. Second, uh, Keith Donnellan told a story a long time ago in the course of defending a cause in the sixties in the course of defending a causal theory of reference. Uh, And the story has a very similar structure. A man is introduced at a party to another man who he is told is the famous philosopher whose work he knows well, J.L. Aston Martin. In fact, it is a different person, perhaps with the same name. When the man reports after the party that he met J.L. Aston Martin last night, as he put it, he refers to the famous philosopher, and what he says is false. But, Donlin argued, when he's narrating certain events that took place at the party. So he says, And then Jones, who was quite drunk, tripped on Ashton Martin's feet and spilled his drink all over him. In this statement, and the thought that's being expressed in making it, he is referring to the man he was introduced to. And he's assuming that the events took place. uh, He speaks uh, the truth. Now, uh, Donnellan put the emphasis not on a temporal change. And all this is before any talk of slow switching uh, that he he told this story. And it was a story told about reference, but it could equally well be told about thought. Um, Donnellan put the emphasis not on temporal change as information that has the new person as its causal source grew and became dominant, but rather on the purposes to which the information or misinformation is put. And on the context of attribution, if the relevant contrast uh, in a particular case of a thought is between a situation in which one met a famous philosopher and a situation in which one did not, then one should take the information to be about the candidate for reference, who is the famous philosopher? While if the relevant contrast is between one or another kind of event uh, that took place at a given party then one should take the content of what is said or thought to be about the relevant person at the party. There need be no stable temporal <coughs> switch in the man's cognitive state. Um, although Donald would go on to say, if you don't like that story, let's talk about how these guys become good friends. And years years later, he still doesn't realize that it's not the famous philosopher. Uh, so it does have a little bit of the flavor of the slow switch uh, story. But anyway, there need be no stable temporal shift. Uh, So if we were to force the issue into the one concept or two mold, we'd have to say that the subject has both concepts at once and has beliefs at one time, both about the famous philosopher and the man he met at the party. But one should still not represent his reasoning as involving unwitting equivocation. In any one context, we should take his belief to be about the one man, or about the other. So finally, uh, an example with a slightly different structure, but one that connects with the issues about self-locating belief that I talked about. And I'll leave it to you if you like to draw the pictures to uh, see how this goes. But I hope you got the rough uh, idea. Uh, Alice tells Bert at the Saturday night party at about 11 p.m. that tomorrow is her birthday. Later in the evening, say about 12:15 a.m., Clara tells Bert that tomorrow is her birthday. Bert, mistakenly assuming at this later time that it is not yet midnight, or just taking for granted that it's not yet midnight, thinks, what a coincidence. Alice and Clara have the same birthday. Bert retained the belief he acquired from Alice and put this information together with his new information about Clara and made an inference from them. Both Clara and uh, both Alice and Cl- Clara in telling him that tomorrow was uh, their birthday spoke the truth in the circumstances in which the statement was made. But the conclude and Bert then formed a belief based on those statements. But the conclusion Bert drew from accepting their statements was false. Did he make a logical error? If we describe the world that Bert takes himself to be in, And again, recognizing that in describing the world as we as Burke takes himself to be in, we have to locate those statements within the world. Uh, And they were made at a different time in the world, according to Burke, than they were made in the actual world. Um, um, If we describe the world as Burke takes himself to be in, along with where he locates himself in that world at the time he makes the inference, we can see the factual mistake that he's making, that is. Uh, It's a perfectly good possible world, coherent and consistent, that he takes himself to be in. It's just not the actual world. Now, the most uh, prominent um, examples of identity confusion in the philosophical literature about propositional attitudes are cases where one thing appears to the thinker in two different guises. Hesperus and Phosphorus, Ralph and Orkut, Pierre in London, Superman and Clark Kent, Wow and Fred. But equally interesting are cases of two things in the actual world merged into one in the world according to the thinker. sort of a reverse kind of identity confusion. Slow switching cases, as well as the variants I've described, are just um, examples uh, of this kind. Um, Now, as I interpret him, Boghossian's view of the target of his criticism, when he's arguing that there's a conflict between anti-individualism and and privileged access or principles of transparency, um, the target of his criticism is an essentially internalist picture, even though it's the externalist he's criticizing, but with an externalist component grafted onto it. Uh, because he assumes that our thoughts are something like implicitly, at least are something like internal sentences and that the privileged access that we have is access. Um, like some kind of perceptual access to these uh, to these mental sentences. Uh, so we have access to them because they're part of our internal mental world. But and this is the externalist part of his characterization of his target, these mental sentences, individuated by their content, according to the externalist, have essential properties that are extrinsic to the mind and so are not accessible. The objects, given that they have those essential properties, are not accessible to the person who's thinking the thought. The person has access to the vehicle but not to the content. But we shouldn't think of access to our thought as access to an internal vehicle of thought. According to a more thoroughgoing externalist picture, we should think of the representation of states of knowledge and belief and the contents of occurring thoughts something like this way. Um, Thinkers are things with a capacity to make their actions depend on the way the world is and with dispositions to make their actions depend on the way they take the world to be. Theorists and attributors of thought characterize these capacities and dispositions by locating the world as the thinker takes it to be in a space of relevant alternative possible worlds. The theorist uses actual things and properties to describe these possibilities, and that is why content depends on facts about the actual world these things that attributors use to describe the possibilities will always be things that have essential essential natures everything does and it may be that both the attributor and the thinker being described are ignorant of these essential features when the way the world actually is diverges from the way the thinker takes the world to be with respect to the identity and nature of things and in particular when the thinker conflates distinct things or thinks of one thing as two in the way in which one does in the standard Fregekamp kind of cases, it may be difficult to find a way to characterize a world according to the thinker that's apt for describing the thinker's cognitive capacities and dispositions. But our descriptive resources are rich and flexible, and in context, we can usually find a way. What counts as a correct description of the world according to the thinker may depend on the attributor's context. A principle of epistemic transparency is satisfied according to this picture in context, not because the thinker is directly acquainted with an inner object that has an inner content essentially, but rather because an apt description of the thinker's cognitive state if it is to explain the rational capacities and dispositions it is intended to explain, must represent the way the world is, according to the thinker, in a way that satisfies that constraint. So the rough idea is that there's a constitutive relation between uh, the content of a thought and the content of your thought about the thought, and that's what uh, is the foundation for the principle of transparency. All right, now, I've been promoting throughout these lectures, a certain very general picture, an externalist perspective on a subject's point of view. I've also been promoting some apparatus that I find useful for articulating um, uh, this uh, picture. And and for clarifying some problems that uh, the picture raises. The apparatus, the possible world's framework and the sort of um, uh, labeling, labeled world's uh, self-locating belief picture aim to provide a way to represent an objective conception of the world as it is in itself. An absolute conception, again, to use Bernard Williams term, and also to provide resources for clarifying the relation between such a conception and the perspectives of subjects who are part of the world according to our objective conception and who have the capacity to experience and think about it. I think the apparatus helps to sharpen the issues, but it must be acknowledged that it also reveals some tensions in the picture that are not fully resolved. I'm gonna conclude uh, today with some very impressionistic remarks that take us back to the general issues that I talked about uh, at the beginning. Now, the critics of um, I think I bunch of, um, the critics of the uh, internalist picture that I caricatured in the first lecture like to talk about it in mythic terms. Wilfred Sellers' phrase, "the myth of the given," has resonance, even if it was never entirely clear exactly what he uh, what what he thought the myth uh, was. I'm going to quote two places that use an authentic myth to highlight one aspect of the internalist picture. And this is the myth of the Garden of Eden. So First, uh, from one of my favorite contemporary uh, writers, American literature, fiction stories uh, and novels. Adam's one task in the garden had been to invent language to give each creature and thing its name. In that state of innocence, his tongue had gone straight to the quick of the world. His words had not been merely appended to the things he saw. They had revealed their essences, had literally brought them to life. A thing and its name were interchangeable. After the fall, this was no longer true. Names became detached from things. Words devolved into a collection of arbitrary signs. Language had been severed from God. The story of the garden, therefore, records not only the fall of man, but the fall of language. And of course, most of the talk of language in philosophical discussions is cover for talk about the intentionality of thought. Now, these are the words, the words I've quoted from Paul Oster's. Collection of stories. Uh, uh, these are the words of a somewhat unhinged fictional scholar who's interpreting Milton's Paradise Lost. David Chalmers, who is neither unhinged nor fictional, uh, quite independently uh, used the same myth in the same way in a, uh, at least one philosophical uh, paper and connected it more explicitly with philosophical issues about perception uh, and representation. So this is Chalmers. And this is struck by by the parallels here. In the Garden of Eden, we had unmediated contact with the world. We were directly acquainted with objects in the world and with their properties. Objects were presented to us without causal mediation, and properties were revealed to us in their true intrinsic glory. When an apple in Eden looked red to us, The apple was gloriously, perfectly, and primitively red. The qualitative redness in our experience derived entirely from the presentation of perfect redness in the world. Eden was a world of perfect color, but then there was a fall. Exactly what Chalmers' attitude is toward this myth uh, and uh, the role it plays in understanding our actual um conception of our perceptual our relationship through perception to to the properties of objects is not completely clear to me but i suggest that even though perhaps eden didn't exist he says perhaps but i don't I think we can drop that part um uh and perhaps it couldn't have existed but nevertheless it reveals something about our um our, situ- our perceptual situation. Anyway, the philosophers I've been talking about, I uh, haven't been talking about Chalmers very much, but he certainly fits within his, uh, this uh, uh, internalist picture, uh, mainly David Lewis, I've, I've been uh, focusing on. Um, anyway, these philosophers, and Boghossian and others, but anyway, these philosophers know that we're no longer in the garden, but they would at least like to hold on to the idea that we can locate a kind of intentional foundation a place where our thought attaches directly to its subject matter. In the garden, according to this way of understanding the myth, we were directly connected to things in the outside world. But after our expulsion from Eden, we were connected in this way only to the materials within our separate internal worlds, to the qualitative character of our experience and to the contents of the thoughts that we spin out of these materials on this picture, you think of uh, a sort of retreat uh, into our internal world, which is a familiar part of the sort of internal uh, uh, idea. Um, the idea of separation and alienation from the world that comes with the myth seems apt. Now. One way to see what I've been trying to do in these lectures has been to undermine the foundationalist picture by undermining the idea that we have the, this kind of direct connection of the kind the picture requires, even to the contents of our minds. That's not the right way to understand uh, that relation. The point, of course, is not that we are even more alienated from the world than the internalist thinks. It's that we need a different way of thinking about what it is that connects our thought with its subject matter. A view of ourselves not as separated from the external world, but as embedded in it and interacting with it. That's our starting point. Now, as I noted in the first lecture, this kind of externalist shift with its rejection of the foundationalist starting point is a familiar theme that's taken various forms and that shaped many of the philosophical debates of the 20th century. And it's, uh, of course, a continuing theme. Uh, we heard earlier this term uh, from John McDowell uh, more about the myth of the given again, not in a favorable, not putting it in a favorable light. and. Tim Williamson's attacks on the principle of luminosity, his book on knowledge, and his defense of what he calls cognitive homelessness um, um, use a different battery of arguments to develop and defend the same kind of picture that's been guiding me in these uh, lectures. Perhaps the cognitive home that we don't have, and if truth be told, never had, is the Garden of Eden. But the externalist shift and the rejection of a foundation uh, brings its own set of problems. And perhaps uh, the shift is a shift in view is naturally seen, as the myth suggests, as a kind of loss of innocence on a more sober account of the foundationalist picture that sets aside colorful rhetoric about words, revealing the essence of things. What's being promised is a way to factor. Are theorizing about the world into two parts. First, we form a priori a conception of the logical space of possibilities, stipulating what we shall mean by the words we use to describe the possibilities, or perhaps to construct the possibilities. We then gather evidence to discover where in that space of possibilities the actual world is, uh, where it's located. If we could theorize in this way, that is, if we could sort of find Uh, find a general we would have a general platform on which any disputes about the facts or about deductive relationships could be clarified and settled by methods that were neutral between any issues that might be contested. The central problem with this picture is that the meanings of our terms and the contents of our thoughts are determined by facts about our causal relations with things in the world and with their properties and with the relations between them. So there isn't any general way guaranteed to be neutral to describe the space of possibilities in which we're trying to locate the world or to care, eh, Nor is there any neutral way to characterize the nature of the evidence that would do the work of locating uh, uh, the world in that logical space. We need in order to sharpen and settle any particular dispute, a context in which we can separate relative to that context, substantive from semantic issues, issues about how we characterize the space of relevant possibilities, uh, distinguished from issues about where in the space the actual world is to be located. But there is no general procedure for finding such a context. The task of doing so needs to be carried out on a case by case basis and there's no guarantee that it will succeed. This essential contextualist feature of the account of rational debate and inquiry gives rise to a general worry that the externalist shift may involve a retreat from a robust realism. The externalist, the philosopher who begins in the middle, rejects a demand that his metaphysical commitments be justified from within, But he must accept the demand, as we talked about, uh, talked about the first time, the demand that his overall philosophical conception be in harmony with the possibility that the subjects in the world as he takes it to be, which include himself, should be the kind of thing that can have a conception of the kind that he is, uh, is promoting. This demand for harmony requires that we recognize that Uh, that's when we sort of apply the general contextualist picture back to ourselves, uh, requires that we recognize that the theorist defending this general contextualist account of knowledge and representation is himself characterizing the world by distinguishing between relevant alternatives in a particular philosophical context. I think the essentially contextualist account of knowledge and of our intentional relations to things. The things we think about can be reconciled with the realist interpretation of knowledge and thought, but it takes philosophical work to do it. The central aim of the machinery for characterizing representational states that I've been promoting, the possible world's framework, the account of self-locating belief, and of the representation of context, the the formal representation of context, Um, uh, the central aim is to clarify this issue By being as explicit as we can about the relation between a conception of the world as it is in itself and the features of representation that essentially involve the subject's perspective on the world. And by providing resources for connecting the content of what is said, thought or known in one context with what is said, thought or known in another. One reason it's useful to think of propositions as functions from a given domain of possibilities, possible worlds, to truth values, is that this conception allows one to make sense of the idea that the content of what is said or thought may be defined relative to narrower or wider domains of possibilities. So a proposition understood in this way may be a piece of contextually local information Or it may be a piece of information that can be detached from the local context and applied more widely. And we can see propositions of the latter kind, the more stable kind, as extensions of propositions of the former kind. So we can compare them. The framework aims to give resources for explaining how we calibrate the information expressed or thought in different contexts by a subject over time or by different subjects in different situations at different times, but it also recognizes that it's not uh, there's no sort of easy and obvious way to do that in, in, in all cases. We begin, it's natural to think in more local contexts, talking and thinking about ourselves and our immediate perceptual environment. We then develop means for expanding our representational resources and for incorporating information from different contexts into more inclusive contexts. Doing this will involve representing ourselves. Part of the means we use to do this is to represent ourselves and our local contexts within a more robust and inclusive context, and representing in our conception of the world as it is in itself our relations between ourselves as objects in the world and the things that we represent. So it involves, in particular, what John Perry called reflexive content. Um, In the end, we must recognize that even our most stable and robust representations have the content that they have in virtue of our relations to what we represent. So just take an example. Tom Nagel alludes to uh, we distinguished in our account of self-locating belief between a local representation of a time as now or today and how we understand that from an objective representation as 10 a.m. or Tuesday and we needed that distinction in order to represent cases where a person doesn't know what time or day it is. But our objective labels for times got their reference from certain events and processes that stand in certain relations to us. This does not prevent us, even in the most local context, from thinking about the world as it is in itself. Now, I argue. Uh, at the beginning, at the end of the first lecture, that uh, there, uh, supposed a certain dilemma or sketched a dilemma that Bernard Williams posed for the absolute conception of reality. And I suggested that that dilemma can be diffused if we're careful to distinguish representations from their content. But Williams' way of putting the dilemma did capture, I think, something right about the problem we face in developing our conception of an objective world. Recall uh, his just a little bit of his discussion. He said, we have two subjects, A and B, each with some knowledge of the world. And we might add, perhaps each in their separate contexts uh, to understand, William says, how each can be perspectives on the same. Each of these different conceptions they have can be perspectives on the same reality. We need to form a conception of the world which contains A and B and their representations. And we need to explain how what each says about the world compares with the other, how they both can be uh, uh, both can be in uh, have information that counts as knowledge. Williams goes on to say that, quote, indeed, we must be able to form that conception, uh, which includes um, these other representatives with regard to every other representation uh, which might make a claim to knowledge. Now there are two ways to understand the existential and universal quantifiers in this last claim. The claim might be that we must be able to form a single conception of the world that incorporates all possible representations of it that might make a claim to knowledge. And if this is the interpretation, then I think it is asking for something that could be achieved only if the foundationist picture were essentially right. And it's as that is asking too much. What can be reasonably demanded is that for any representation we might find in the world, if we, any representations we might find in the world, if we take them to make correct claims to knowledge, then there, uh, there will be a way to construct a context in which we can represent their representations as perspectives on the same reality. This is enough, I think, uh, to be a very ambitious demand. But I think it's enough to ground a robustly realistic conception uh, of the world. Thanks.